Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bluebird in Chelsea. We're here for a very special readers' event with John Surtees. Please put your hands together. I'm, I'm Damien Smith, the editor of the magazine, and I'm joined um, by our editor-in-chief, Nigel Roebuck. Now, there's so much to talk about with John, um, and I'm sure you've all got questions, and I'll make sure you, you all get a chance to, to ask those questions. But, Nigel, I think we'll, we'll start with, with you. Um, now, you've been a Formula One journalist for over 40 years now, first season, 1971. Do you remember the, the first time you met John, and, and maybe the first time you saw him race as well as a, as a fan? Uh, yes, I do. It was, in fact, it was the very first race I ever, uh, I ever covered, which was the Spanish Grand Prix in 1971 at Barcelona, at the old uh, Montuich uh, Park circuit. And I was extremely fortunate because it was my first race. I knew no one, uh, except that at Good Friday, Good uh, Alton Park, uh, Formula One, non-championship Formula One race, I didn't very sort of timidly introduce myself to Rob Walker. Uh, and Rob said, um, will in Barcelona come and find me? which I did, and Rob took me round the paddock and literally introduced me to everybody, including John. And of course, at that time, it was the Brookbond Oxo Rob Walker team. So you were actually driving for Rob, and that was the first time we, that was the first, my first race, and that was the first time we met. What do you remember of Rob? Well, Rob uh, somewhat came to our rescue, I suppose. Um, when I decided that I'd had enough of being uh, sort of let up a garden path and disappointed with some antics which were all happening from a certain team in Bourne, um, <laughs> I thought that, uh, which was a great shame because it had been a fantastic team in earlier years, uh, I thought that uh, enough of this, I'm going to do my own thing and I'll build my own car. But we didn't have enough money and you had to buy a Grand Prix engine at seven and a half thousand pounds, you know, a Grand Prix engine those days. And we managed to put a budget together to build that first car of 22,000 pounds. Uh, right from scratch, building everything in the little factory in Edenbridge. But uh, Rob came to the rescue and said, oh, uh, I think we can get some sponsorship um, later on. Uh, not that very first year, but what he did do is lend me an engine. Mm -hmm. He lent me an engine on the subject that we overhauled it, and that was it. So that was the first connection. But the following year, uh, 71, when you were there, uh, he actually came aboard with Bookbond Oxo, and uh, it was Rob Walker, Bookbond Oxo. Rob, of course, great enthusiast, and he had this sort of passion of sport. He'd been involved with Sterling for so long, uh, which was uh, obviously uh, quite a, a major part in his life. But uh, certainly he was very supportive of that time. Uh, you know, didn't put a fortune in or anything else like that, but his support, both moral and that engine and some other uh, support he managed to arrange with Book Bond was what kept us going. Uh, John, we, we've kind of started in the middle of your story uh, rather than the beginning. And if anyone's read the November issue of uh, Motorsport, they'll have seen an interview with John where he talks passionately about 
young drivers and, and driving talent and how uh, these days money talks rather than talent. Um, for you, John, your, your beginnings were, were very different from young guys trying to come up today. Uh, it was you and your father uh, on motorcycles. Could you just give us a picture of what it was like in those, those early days with you, with you and your dad uh, trying to make your way? I suppose it's best to just run a quick uh, way through how my career developed. Um, and in fact, it was in 10-year stages, really. Um, 1950, Brands Hatch went along and put down onto the grass track that I'd been many times to see my father racing on, and which I'd raced on, uh, a tarmac surface. And one of the main young competitors that I was racing with uh, on grass tracks came along and said, we're going down to Brands Hatch to try a bike out on the road for the first time. How about you coming? So why not? The only thing is my little Triumph Tiger 70 250cc bike had knobbly tires and everything else on it. But I went down to Brands Hatch and did some laps on the knobbly tires and everything and decided that was for me. I was going road racing. Uh, so uh, I uh, came back and I had to get other tires and things. So on that event, 1950, I took place on the grid with my 250 Triumph in the 500 race, a certain Bernie Eccleston uh, <laughs> was competing. Um, wheeler dealing as usual. Uh, I think he'd bought a, 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 a Norton, sold the engine out to a 500 car uh, engine and put a Jap in it and he was riding that. Uh, so um, uh, Bernie was there and it could, could have been a rather special start because I actually took the lead uh, in the final. Uh, the only thing is uh, I lost, left something behind and that was my bike. Because I slid past uh, Harry Pierce, who was in fact to become the head of the McLaren uh, machine shop some years later uh, on another Triumph, I passed him sliding on my backside. <laughs> but that was a start. And then in the 50, 1960, of course, uh, it's to wear great decisions. And the great decisions was to do a year driving a car in between the Grand Prix that I was doing for Envy Augusta. So 350 and 500 Grand Prix. And when I was available, after a handshake deal with Colin Chapman, I would drive a Grand Prix car. And so that was my year of 1960. And it's 1960, that, that year still, the more I, you know, over time, the more I've thought about it, the more, the more difficult I find it to believe. The fact that you were, in June, you, uh, you won the TT, and in July you were second in the British Grand Prix, so you, which was your second Formula One race. Uh, and, I, and I just find that quite difficult to take in now. And particularly one weekend at Solitude, when the same weekend you were, you were racing the MV and you were also racing Rob Walker's Formula 2 Porsche. Yeah, yeah, literally hopping from bike to car in the same weekend. Uh, yeah. that, today's world, that's, that's really very hard to take in. Um, 
Yeah, it was uh, interesting. <laughs> it was interesting. It was something where a challenge. Um, Augusta decided that I could only race in selected races for the world championship with my motorcycles, with, with his motorcycles. But there was nothing in my contract to stop me uh, driving cars. So after being introduced to cars in a way by Reg Parnell and Tony Vanderville, after a Sportsman of the Year contest where we met uh, at the end of 1958 when uh, Mike Hawthorne had won the World Championship. Um, I tried a Van Wall and an Aston Martin and I decided we'd do a car. So I had that situation of where um, I went to buy a car because I didn't want to be committed to anybody. I'd buy a Formula 2 Cooper. So I went along to buy the Formula 2 Cooper and this in turn uh, meant that I went to Weybridge, met up with John Cooper, who had also somehow arranged for Ken Till to be there. <laughs> and out of the shadows stepped this tall gentleman and he said, I've entered you for Goodwood in my Formula Junior. I've spoken to the RAC and they will get you a license subject to you behaving yourself. So I duly turned up at Goodwood. The car hadn't been ready for testing beforehand. It was un unpainted. And uh, that was it. Uh, I managed to put it on pole. Had a dice with a certain Jim Clark in a, in a Lotus Ford. Forgot I had four wheels. Uh, when I was getting to St Mary's uh, around the back there when we were passing someone uh, and ended up too much on the grass and I think dropped back to third or fourth but managed to pick up again to second place and but Jim had just picked me so that was it then it was hang on John because that that was the very first car race you'd ever been to yeah I'd never it? seen one before no I know <laughs> exactly <laughs> No, I'd never seen one before that. That was, uh, I went along and, and I didn't know anybody or anything else, but uh, I saw it from the cockpit. So uh, that was it. But um, I suppose it's the best way, dropping the deep end. My dad was always that way. Uh, he always sort of tended to do that with me. However, um, chief mechanic, dad, second mechanic, me, and uh, dr number one driver, me, and we go off for Team Surtees. Uh, it wasn't named that way those days. Uh, goes off to Alton Park, and we finish in front of all the other Formula Twos, apart from the Works Lotus of Inners Island, and come second. And then it was the International Trophy at um, Aintree, mm -hmm. where uh, the Porsches, the all-conquering Porsches, came, mm. and I. <coughs> tried obviously to beat those but we had all the Lotus team and the Cooper team etc there as well but at least I finished in front of all the uh, British entry and came first British car and set that record upon which Colin Chapman came up and said come and try a Formula One and this is a point I mentioned in the article in that uh, he didn't come along and say how much money you got uh, and what sponsors you got. He said, come along and try a Formula One. And uh, so I went to Silverstone 
and um, I did some laps in it and Colin did some laps because that was the days rather like Adrian Newey uh, who's you know a driver and everything else and a designer uh, you know Colin was the same he was a driver and he sat in a Formula One car and he went round and Ennis went round and I went round ended up stuffing it in the bank at Stowe uh, which caused a lot of problems uh, with not with uh, not with uh, Colin, but with Innes uh, talking about rank amateurs, etc., uh, <laughs> uh, coming into the works team. But uh, the end result of the day was Colin saying, You're going to be my Formula One driver, along with Jimmy and Innes. So I said, I can't, I'm a motorcyclist, so I've got championships to race. Well, when you're not racing a bike, race a car. And so that's how it started. It's, it's one of the great. Um, what might have been really of, of, of motorsport history that at the end of 1960 you could have stayed at Team Lotus and what a super team we'd have had. Forget Lewis and Jensen, you know, John Surtees and Jim Clark at Lotus through the 60s would have been something else. Just explain to us a little bit why you decided to, to walk away from Lotus and, and what Chapman was like to deal with in those days. Uh, Colin, um, let's face it, all the Formula One teams which were being created in England following on from Van Wall. Van Wall was in fact I suppose a renaissance of the British Grand Prix effort uh, and um, the rest of them were a bit kick cars. I mean they couldn't have happened if you hadn't had f f uh, cars like Triumph Hilds and you go along and use Triumph Hilds uprights and steering racks and all these sort of bits and then go along and Colin had his little factory in the same road where they made uh, sort of uh, tubular furniture and he'd go along and get the tube from down there as well uh, and uh, make the chassis etc so uh, they were all a bit of a backyard job but you know the concept and the cars worked uh, the Lotus 18 I think is probably the most competitive car I ever drove in my whole career. You know, that's saying something in that, in that first year, that car was probably compared with uh, all the other cars I drove, it's probably the most competitive one I ever drove. And uh, it's fabulous, a bit frail, but um, I did those races and at the end of the year, Colin said, you're gonna be my number one. He said, uh, choose your teammate. So uh, I didn't have much hesitation. Uh, I said, Jimmy, we got on well together and everything else. I said, Jimmy. And so that was all fixed as far as I knew. And I decided to retire from motorcycling and etc. Then a cloud on the horizon, like a uh, atomic cloud appeared and a very noisy one in the uh, way of uh, Innes. And, uh, with some justification, I think. Uh, Innes said, what about my contract, etc. And so I got embroiled in being in the middle of a big row about Innes having contracts and um, the rest of it. And this was taken up by some people in the press, etc. where, you know, I'd come in and there was creating this havoc. And so, in a way, uh, I was perhaps a little too sensitive. Uh, I was, should have been perhaps a little more like uh, 
one or two other drivers I could uh, mention and uh, disregard those personal things. But I walked away from it. And so for a moment, I had nothing. I had stopped my motorcycling career and I'd stopped my car career. And so um, that moment lasted for a very short while. And um, Reg Parnell jumped in and said, we got works coopers. We can put you in a works cooper at Yeoman Credit. The only thing is that when Esso, I think, heard about it, they told Coopers, you don't supply them works Coopers. You supply them production cars. So I ended up with uh, Yeoman Credit and a production Lotus, uh, a production Cooper, sorry. And so uh, that was it. And um, so that sort of how I, I didn't continue with um, Lotus in that time. But in fact, John, at that time when, when you did the deal with, uh, with Reg Parnell, you had already, for the first time, actually turned down Ferrari, hadn't you? At the end of 60. Wasn't that the first approach from, uh, from Ferrari? Yes. Um, Enzo loved, uh, his background was in motorcycles and things. He used to have a rudge racing team and things like this. And so, uh, you know, motorcyclists uh, were rather special to him uh, at times. And so they asked me to go out. And so I went out and I was shown into this office and the old man was sitting there with his, just this light and his picture of Dino, his son, up behind him. It was fairly dim, but I'd come across all this before with, with Augusta to some extent. Uh, uh, the dark glasses were very similar, uh, <laughs> uh, etc. Uh, so uh, I went in and I was then told by uh, the um, sort of uh, manager there at the time uh, that we were to go to Maranello, the Maranello and we've got this team, we've got that, uh, we've got these cars, we've got those cars and everything else. And of course, um, they did have some you know, fantastic cars in the making with the V6 engine for the beginning of the new formula. But uh, they also had a whole long list of drivers. And I said, no, 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 no. Uh, I don't, I don't, I said, I don't know enough about this uh, driving to really come here and be able to stand up for myself. I need to be a little more uh, of a uh, proven entity to myself before I'm going to take this challenge on. So I said, no, they said, we do not ask again. <laughs> but they did. Uh, so uh, that was uh, that bit of story, but it was that thing because I loved Italy. I loved the food, I loved the people, and uh, it was uh, a special time. You did actually turn them down a second time before the... It was the third time when you actually said, yeah, okay, now I'm ready, wasn't it? Isn't, isn't that right? Well, I, I got an inquiry via a fuel company uh, about it, but um, <coughs> I decided that... The situation with Lotus, and there was only one person, I thought, who could perhaps rival Lotus and perhaps come up with a car, and that was Eric Broadley. So uh, 
And it was very convenient because Eric Broadley had his little factory one street away from where I lived in, in Bickley Bromley. And so um, I went to see him and said, Eric, would you build a car if I can get the finance? And I went to Yeoman Credit, who were then becoming Bowmaker, and um, said, you know, would you finance the building of these cars, if that's the case? So Eric said, well, can we get the engine? So I went to Coventry Climax, and uh, we could get the sort of four-cylinder engines, and they promised to let us have some eight-cylinder engines after they'd supplied Lotus and Cooper, etc. And so the Lola Formula One was born. And um, it was, you know, if we think about it, um, okay, I put it on pole at, for the first Grand Prix in Zambolt, and the steering broke on that. But uh, then we finished fourth in the World Championship with it in its first year ever. Um, and uh, in front of Porsche, in front of Ferrari, etc. So it was a big team effort, you know, but at the end of the year, Coventry Climax said to us, uh, we can no longer um, supply you with engines, we've got to concentrate on just Cooper and Lotus. So Ferrari came on again and I thought, this is the time. The best time to join an Italian team or something is when they're down. Uh, the, the worst time is when they're at the top. Uh, and so uh, that way we all gel together and perhaps have a common objective. And so uh, just the same has happened with MV Augusta. Because with MV Augusta when I went there, they'd never won a, uh, any uh, of the um, championships on 500 cc's. Their last two dry riders had both been killed. And so um, it was you know, a bit rock bottom. So it was a good time to go. And I went to Ferrari after they'd had a disastrous year by their standard. And that was a, a new beginning, a new phase of my life. And uh, also, suddenly, you know, I was back after driving that DBR1 around um, uh, Goodwood. A fabulous car. This was a car that uh, Sterling had won a thousand kilometers of uh, around Nürburgring. But fabulous car. I uh, was involved in the first thing they came along and said, right, cars for Sebring. We've got to get cars for Sebring. And so I started a development program immediately with uh, a sports car or prototype cars to race at Sebring. But that was, it was an extraordinary thing. There you were, this was 1963. And at the time, it's hard to believe now, but Ferrari's focus was emphatically on sports car racing, well, well particularly Le Mans. And I remember you telling me long ago the frustration you felt that you, you were anxious to develop the Formula One car. And in fact, all the focus from the factory seemed to be on the sports cars and the Formula One car only came out very occasionally. Um, it was all a question of that sort of political juggling and financial juggling that uh, Ferrari had uh, engaged in over the years in creating his company. Um, the sports car program 
brought him support from the Italian Federation and also from the various owners who all went along and bought cars to compete and supported cars. And so he had a lot of support come in for those sports cars uh, from the various agents uh, who wanted cars. And for instance, when I actually got round to testing the cars, you know, what would happen is that I'd test cars and a car would go to uh, the uh, Maranello, say, and a car would, uh, concessionaires, and a car would go to uh, the um, <coughs> American team, uh, etc. Uh, so, and then there'd be another one go to the Belgium team, and probably we end up the works team would come along and get the fourth car. Mm -hmm. But the fact remains is that that was very important to him, and I hadn't appreciated at a time that for Formula One. You know, they dragged out the year before his car virtually, and uh, that stayed that way until you got to Le Mans was over, and then suddenly you'd have a panic move on developing the Formula One, which was frustrating yeah. from, from a Formula One driver point of view, but uh, I love driving those prototypes. They, they, they were uh, great fun. John, your, your world championship that um put you in this unique position of being the only man on two and four wheels, came in 1964, uh, smack bang in the middle of this era where Clark and Chapman were, 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 had been dominant and won the 63 title, the 65 title. You were right in the middle of it all. Um, just give us a, a flavour of what it was like to be a Formula One driver in that era because the, the wealth of talent that, that were in, was in the sport at that time was, was really unprecedented and, and probably has never been matched since. Well, um I don't know about that, but at this time, um, you had this formidable uh, team, which was uh, the teamwork between uh, Coventry Climax. And each time, you see, you've got to remember that Coventry Climax made four-cylinder engines, and of course the eight-cylinder engines were the ones racing then. Uh, but they always had development engines. The development engines had X amount more power than others. And of course, a team had to be selected and the team what got those was Lotus. Uh, and same as what happened when the um, Cosworth came about. The same applied. The development engine went to Lotus until uh, Jimmy got killed and then it ended up with Stuart and Ken Till, etc. But those engines uh, always had, you know, a stage or two further advanced, so they'd have their extra horsepower. But Jimmy, you know, superb driver. Uh, Colin, were a car which uh, was very user friendly. Uh, it wasn't a car you threw around like a Cooper, or to some degree a Ferrari. Um, it was a very a car which could be well driven economically, you know, and not use, use the road but use it efficiently without it travelling sideways too much. Uh, Colin had that sort of knack and uh, so it, it was formidable opposition. And Ferrari, of course, uh, we had this business of where we had our hand tied behind our back. Uh, we could have sewed up the championship earlier on in the year. Um, a freak situation happened in the Zandvoort race, not a Zandvoort race, sorry, the Austrian race uh, at Zelvig, where 
you'd never believe it, but a handmade, uh, forged uh, steering um, bearing uh, on the uh, track rod, you know, broke. Um, God knows how it ever happened, but these were sort of parts which, you know, made you feel very confident in Ferrari. And on that occasion, on this very bumpy airfield circuit, I go along, I'm leading the race, and what happens? The damn thing breaks. And so uh, that's it. And so uh, we have that. In America, I'm sort of, uh, there were a possibility of winning the American Grand Prix. And I'm with Jimmy, with, um, at that time, uh, Graham, Graham in the BRM, and sort of dice in there. And uh, I uh, think, right, I've got it all lined up where I'm going to sort of perhaps do my big effort. And uh, we come across, I forgot it was, someone we're lapping. And uh, I decide that he's going to be that side of the road and I make a mistake. He wasn't. He decided to go that side and had me all over the grass. And so I lost out and lost, lost a chance of an actual win there. So there's the odd thing. Um, it was, um, and his spa, uh, the thing looked like it going well, but it burnt a piston. So uh, we, we, we'd had our chances, which would have made it easier, but it was very satisfying. And what you'd like to have thought is that that would have really spurred them on to do a fantastic job for the following year. But unfortunately, we entered this period when there was a lot of uncertainty at Ferrari. And uh, what had happened is that there was a threat of a Ford purchase. There was also a threat of other takeovers. And I think, I think the old man was feeling the pinch. Uh, there was all sorts of economic things and so uh, we ended up with not developing the flat 12, one and a half litre, which in fact was probably the, in the one race I, I drove it, or at least to practice I drove it, it was probably the finest competitive Ferrari I ever drove. Um, that was at Monza in 1965. Uh, but. It was one, only one week before I had my serious accident in Canada. Uh, so I never had a chance to drive it again. But uh, that race, I reckon I could have played, played with the opposition because it really was flying. But uh, the clutch failed. So um, that wasn't to be. But that was the situation there. It was an extraordinary time, though, John, that at Ferrari, because, um, I mean, that year you were driving with the, with the V8, and Bandini was, was using the flat 12 um, all the time. And then the following year, um, again, Ferrari were using different engines in different cars. So the Bandini started the year with the V6 engine, which actually you preferred. Um, and you were, particularly at Monte Carlo, stuck with the V12, where the V6, you, you know, you would, you would have won with the V6. And it seems now ext extraordinary that Ferrari were entering two cars at every Grand Prix with, with different engines. Well, it's political. And also, I think we're back to that question of uh, uh, finance, uh, of you know, resources and what was available. Um, yeah, the story, the story about that um, is that in 1965, uh, I persuaded Ferrari, I said, let me do the Tasman series. Let me go off to Australia and New Zealand and do a Tasman series. Let's take one of the Formula One one and a half litre cars and let's put a 2.4 six-cylinder engine in it, 
and uh, you know, and make a real flyer of a little car. So that was all being built and was built. Uh, and then, of course, I go off to Mossport and uh, drive in a Lola, um, which in fact wasn't my car. It was the second car of a team, uh, which should have been driven by uh, Jackie Stewart. Um, but he said he wasn't very happy with it, so I went out to test it, and the front suspension failed, and um, I uh, ended up, you know, with a broken back and uh, on a danger list. So that was it. But out of that, you know, Ferrari was fantastically supportive uh, when I was sort of able to communicate again. I mean, he came on and said, "Ah, oh, you know, what's the matter?" I said, "Oh." I'm rather sm smashed up. Which side? I said, Sinister, the left-hand side. Oh, we'll make you an automatic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they make it automatic, things like this. And normally you think, oh, a team like that would say, you know, here he is, death door, and this and that. Uh, we'll get another driver signed up. But he never attempted to do that. He gave confidence that I'd come back, and uh, his insurance actually paid for my hospital bills and things like this. So I went back, uh, eventually, once they pulled me straight down at St. Thomas's Hospital, uh, etc., because I was about four inches short on one side before the old uh, Mr. Urquhart decided that uh, he'd get one end of me and his uh, registrar at the other end and pull me straight, which I did within half an inch at least. And so I went back to Marinello for the first time, um, having done a bit of convalescence. I still was using the crutches a bit, and uh, they rigged up a uh, engine crane over the cockpit, so I was able to lift myself up and drop myself in the, in the car uh, on this crane. And which car was it? The 2.6. And so this is my convalescence car. <laughs> and I went round and round Modena uh, in this little car and set the fastest ever time around it, uh, with it. It, it. it was a little flyer. And um, that was it. Well, we then wheeled out the new three-litre V12 Grand Prix car. And so what happens is that um, I obviously had kept my ear to the ground. And the engine which was going to be designed, um, I think again, probably a monetary restraint, uh, wasn't. And so an interim engine was made, which was a short stroke version of a sports car engine. So instead of the sort of 330, 340 horsepower, which we thought we'd start off with, we had about 290 horsepower in it. So I went out to Modena with it, and I went round and round. And I was, what, two and a half, three seconds a lap slower than I'd been in the little uh, 2.6, a uh, 2.4, uh, which didn't please me at all. Um, and I, I came to Silverstone with it, and uh, going up the straight uh, to Stowe Corner, the 2.2-litre BIM of Stuart blasts by me, uh, which wasn't very pleasing. And so I conveyed my thoughts to the old man back there, 
uh, in the right sort of tone. And um, I said, right, Monaco, I'm going to use the 2.64. So we go to Monaco, and uh, Mr. Dragoni, uh, the team manager, says, ah, oh, uh, Ferrari make 12-cylinder engines to sell to the public. Their cars are 12-cylinders. Uh, therefore, you are number one driver. We must be seen that you drive a 12-cylinder. I didn't see the rationale of that. I thought, I, I said, aren't we here to win? Uh, but I said, look, okay, I'll row it along and the uh, rest of it, but I doubt whether it can finish the race. As it was, I kept it in front all the time. It kept going, and then the gearbox broke. But uh, it was a struggle, and it was a, a, a set the scene for what was then to happen and develop during the year. Uh, following that race, mind you, um, engineer Rocky, who was the main project engineer, uh, came up with some design changes to the existing two-valve cylinder head and found us about another 20 horsepower. So by the time we got to Spa, uh, the car was much better. Uh, and that's the race which I won. Well, we've only just got on to the Machiavellian Dragoni. It's a perfect name for a villain, isn't it, really? Um, and there's so much more to talk about, but I really want to give um, everyone here a chance to ask John some questions. Um, so um, let's, let's have some questions for John, and indeed for Nigel. Okay, gentlemen uh, over here. John, you're the only bloke who's done it in both uh, formulas. When you're going into Paddock Hill Bend in a Formula One car or a motorcycle, which one is scarier? Paddock Hill, Paddock Hill Bend, uh, Brands Hatch. Yeah, that's the um, one. Well, of course, I've done Paddock Hill Bend uh, both ways because I used to come up it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, when I first started because that's the way the circuit went uh, so um, uh, I know it fairly well um, but no no Paddock was one of the corners which is a bit of a teaser uh, and uh, rather uh, uh, a corner which can make a difference not only from the point of view of the speed into it but the most important thing with Paddock Hill is you know how quick you can get in but also also, that you don't go into a point where you have to cross yourself all up and get yourself so mixed up that you go slowly up the hill again. Uh, so it's very important to get in quick, but get round them nicely and on the power early so you get the maximum launch up the hill uh, out of it. But, um, no, both a bike and a car. A, a good bike. Um, the MV was difficult there because the exhaust pipes, etc. as you go to the apex and you just go over that bump, the suspension would sit down and you're on sort of pretty well inclined and they grind on the road so that would lift the bike up and you were in a little bit of difficulty with it. But with a Norton you could go around there uh, in a way which uh, you, know, you really felt satisfied afterwards. So um, that sort of corner Perhaps a bike uh, it gives you the biggest sensation, uh, I would think. Was that true also of Bournemouth at, uh, at Spa? 
Yeah, old spa, which you did both. Uh, well, no, when you, yeah, cars. spa, Bourneville, uh, the old co- cocoa bins. Um, this is um, very, very special places, and that's where if you get a bike and you, with the later type tires we were using, although they were only sort of perhaps four inches or so wide, um, they were um, able to get to a point where you could actually get the bike driving nicely all the way through there and to a degree uh, uh, of drift on it so that you had very nearly a slight opposite lock that was the way the MV started to handle as we got to the 1960 Uh, a car when it was nicely set up and everything else and you were going through there would give you a very similar sensation in fact uh, the difference between bikes and cars on a some of the sort of rather nice fast corners, particularly which used to exist on circuits, uh, wasn't so much different. It was still uh, a very satisfying. I think there's nothing quite like fast corners, uh, which are not quite. Uh, you know, ten tenths, ones which are just, you know, on that edge are the most satisfying thing to get right. And where all the time can be made up between the good and the not so good. Good question. That's another one. Over there, there's a gentleman. Mr. Surtees, thank you for coming this evening. Uh, one of my colleagues is a very fortunate man. He owns two of your chassis. He's got a Formula 5000 and a Formula... Th- one car, uh, both, I think he tells me they're very similar chassis but different engines, and he prefers the Formula 5000. We are amateur racers, I hasten to add. What, what are your feelings about the two? Well, of course, the Formula 5000 is a quite a different motor car, you know, with a big lump, a five litre Ford engine in the back, well, a Chevrolet engine normally we always used, but uh, that's quite a heavy lump in the back, and so you drive it quite differently. Um, in a way, I suppose I might go along and use an expression that Rossi used to me uh, about um, a... Uh, the difference in bikes that was you may remember some years ago that Grand Prix motorcycle race in uh, MotoGP changed from the sort of the two-stroke 500s and uh, which were the real sort of racing Grand Prix bikes and they started to go on to uh, big uh, um, uh, four-stroke machines um, and larger capacity ones and in fact we're back up to a thousand cc now Uh, well i asked uh rossi what he thought about this he said ah the cinquecento is like a racehorse Uh, he says you're there you are on the edge and he said it's it is there you are playing with it and just it, it it is very very satisfying and thrilling he said the Thousand cc in a mille uh, is um, a little more like a cart horse. Uh, he said, uh, "Yes, uh, very good and very solid, but doesn't have that same degree of excitement." I think the same thing exists between that, the Formula One, uh, and the five thousand, largely because of that sort of weight mass at the back. And of course, they have to be driven quite differently. 
uh, to, to cope with that uh, changes. I think if there's an occasion again where you're going to meet Valentino Rossi, do let us know, because I think that'd be quite an interesting uh, conversation to sit in on. So, uh, um, yes. Um, let's have another question from the floor. Anyone else? There's a hand up over there. And, yeah, let's try one over there here first, and we'll come back to you in a second. Uh, when, when you left MV in 1960, were you um, a bit concerned that Gary Hocking might be uh, as quick as you in 1961? Um, I wasn't particularly concerned about that. Uh, my, own, my own attitude has always been that... Um, if you're going to be in any teams, and this didn't apply to Gary, because uh, the fact is I'd seen Gary on, uh, with Norton's, and I'd seen him at MVs and everything else. Um, there was uh, situations where, on teams, uh, like we saw with uh, Jensen uh, Button when he went into Hamilton uh, at Mercedes, uh, I think that was quite a good policy, because... Uh, if you consider that someone is perhaps uh, the fastest uh, there, uh, that uh, the best thing to do is probably be in that team because um, you're for sure going to prove yourself. And I, th I think that, you know, Gary probably had some of that attitude on in that obviously he wanted to beat me uh, and uh, would have wanted to beat me. But at the same time, if you go along and look at times and things which were done, uh, I don't think they necessarily uh, matched that well on a number of the circuits the following year. Um, so Gary, a very competent and a very aggressive driver, uh, a rider uh, as such, but um, that was uh, not a consideration uh, on uh, why I should uh, change my career at all. Uh, frankly, uh, I let myself run my life rather than other people. Good answer. Okay. Um, let's have another question. Um, we've got a couple over here. Thank you, Lily. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, hello, John. I'm Richard. Um, just, just a question. You, you're obviously still very close to both GP and Formula One, or you're mixing those circles. Back, uh, back in the 1560s, which was more fun from an overall paddock point of view and, and the racing? And if you had an opportunity today to go back into either of the codes, which one would you go into and why? Between, sorry? Between two wheels and four wheels. Um, one of the difficulties, of course, in uh, a MotoGP at the moment is that um, it is uh, a rather small field. Um, I'd like to see Ducati come along and uh, come back, and it'd be nice to see some others. Um, if there was a sort of challenge on uh, at all, and I was thinking of going back into motorcycle, uh, I'd probably like to go along, and particularly now that they're linked in with uh, Audi, uh, have a challenge and do exactly what Rossi isn't doing, and that is go to Ducati. Uh, uh, that, that, that would be a great challenge and uh, again we'll be back in Italia uh, which would be quite good but um, I think that it is and I've used this term before when I was but I think it's a uh, 
present-day drivers are privileged to be able to sit in cars which largely, apart from the tyres, can be driven from start to finish at very near their maximum. This is something which rarely we could do. We're always making compromises, you know, watching this and watching that. Nothing was ever controlled from the pits, of course. Uh, it was all down to you. So watch the gauges, watch this, watch that. And so you're doing those compromises uh, around it. And I think that one, to have the safety which is involved in the car of today, at least the Formula One car of today, and two, to have that degree of engineering uh, that is there which provides you with cars which can perform from a drop from a not a drop of the flag anymore but from the lights going out to uh, the finish uh, is a privilege and uh, it would be I, I think a real challenge to uh, take that up but one aspect I don't like at the present time I don't like this uh, tire situation uh, I do think that if there's a car which can perform perhaps at 101%, you know, be right at the very pinnacle of its uh, ability, and also a driver who's able to do that, that he should be able to sort of use it without having to compromise to save the tyres, etc. Uh, this is something which uh, I, 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 I don't really like. Forgive me, John. It just something it just struck me when you mentioned in Ducati. You you once said to me, when I look back on my career, what I did all the time was instead of making the sensible decisions and going to the right team at the right, I was always captivated by the challenge of I can make that right. And you, <laughs> I remember you saying that particularly about well about Honda, for instance. So it's interesting that there's a part of you that's still sort of drawn to, yeah, Ducati over here, because you know, you, with Audi well, there, we could, we could pull it together, we could make it work. You should have been my manager. <laughs> <coughs> of course, we didn't have managers in those days or anything else, uh, but no, you, you've hit on something in that uh, my enthusiasm often, uh, well, largely uh, controlled my life and I get all involved in projects and I was so I expected to see my years out uh, my competition years out in uh, Maranello frankly uh, but uh, that family sort of connection came to an end although I have still many friends there and good connections uh, and I went along and I thought that I joined a, a new family and that's it how Honda looked upon it that you joined the family uh, as it was commercial reasons etc which all happened in the Japanese uh, side meant that that came to a premature end which led me to uh, setting up my own team but no from a point of view if um, I'd been a sort of um, perhaps a, a senator or a steward I would have uh, gone along and made certain that I sort of I'd sat myself in the most competitive car of the time, uh, which, from a point of view of pure results, um, would have probably been the answer. But on the other hand, I'm not quite so sure I would have met uh, 
so many nice people as I did and have such fun and uh, perhaps so much excitement or as much disappointment. Those emotions all go along and make your life up. So um, all in all, uh, one makes one's decisions and lives by them and it's uh, fortunate, I've often said, that uh, when someone starts off and has a hobby and they can turn that hobby into where they can lead their life largely revolving around that hobby and actually get paid for it. They have a privilege, and I think I've been privileged. Okay, we've got more questions over here. So, gentlemen over here, and then we'll come back to the middle in a, in a second. Uh, your um, old friend, Mr. Bernie Eccleston, is producing circuits seemingly all over the world designed by the same hand, do you regret the passing of the diversity of Reims, the Nürburgring, Zandvoort, etc.? Um, I, um, one of the things that um, I, if I was a younger man, I could just sort of switch years back uh, and was competing, which perhaps I would miss is having the opportunity of having driven and ridden on all the diverse circuits that I have done. Uh, all those various challenges and perhaps stupid risks and things we took, which were all, you know, accepted at the time. Um, I would perhaps uh, miss that. Uh, I think that one of the finest bit of news I heard this year was that SPA would continue. SPA is not the old SPA I raced on, but as a link between the past and the present, it's the finest example that I know. And uh, when you go into that paddock and the rest of it, you can't help but uh, perhaps feel uh, the spirits of the past are still there. Uh, it's, uh, it's a very special place. Okay, some more questions. We've got a few in the middle here, so if we can maybe pass the mic around. John, a question about the days when you were running your own Formula One team. Uh, those must have been interesting days, going from being a driver for another team, then driving for your own team. I wondered who were some of the interesting drivers you had driving for you at that time, and who was perhaps the most rewarding or the most interesting that you had driving for you when you were a team owner? Um... Well, when I formed my own team, I sort of uh, became a part-time driver. I was the development driver because I'd sort of uh, have to be uh, there. I was sort of chief procure of sponsorship and I was sort of uh, perhaps workshop manager at times and part designer and bits and this and it is what happens when you have a very small company. A um, bit of a jack of all trades. And I would go out and test the cars and then I'd drive anything new in a, in a car. For a while I uh, raced um, a bit in Formula 2 with our Formula 2 cars. Um, and in fact, um, I think my last, one of my last wins was in fact with the Formula 2 car at the end of 72 uh, when I uh, took it to the Japanese Grand Prix at Fuji. Uh, which was a Formula 2 race in those days and uh, one with that as a TS-10 
with a two-litre heart engine. But um, we had a, a very small budget we were developing, and in fact, we were knocking on the door there because we were sort of uh, able to um, think about you know getting into that top six, and uh, also um, we sort of have led Grand Prix, and we also got up to sort of finish. I think we had thirds and etc. Um, my drivers. As such, um, had a whole range, a range of drivers. We went along and took young drivers. One or two of the drivers uh, had to be paid drivers. Uh, but I always made certain that someone I really believed in uh, was also in the car. And so um, our first driver uh, who drove in our Formula 5000 car was in fact David Hobbs. David Hobbs went along and he went out to America and won with a 5,000 car. Um, and so that was very good. Mike Howard was having a very tough time uh, driving occasionally. In, uh, and I thought, well, as a motorcyclist, I could understand his problems and straighten him out a bit. And, um, you know. I rated Mike very highly. He was not only a, a sort of a, a good competitor and came together with a car well, but um, he didn't pretend to have any technical knowledge or any input, but luckily we had enough sort of communication to be able to understand each other. And so he went very well indeed, and in fact won the European Championship for us in Formula 2. So that was very good. Uh, perhaps the most talented one of the whole lot was Carlos Pacci. Uh, Carlos Pacci was a very special uh, driver and we gave him... Uh, um, I took... Uh, I sort of looked at a person called Alan Jones <laughs> who was, um, I think, doing some... Uh, uh, part-time work selling cars and things and uh, his wife was uh, got some bunk beds and putting up Australians and things in their house and I, I think he's probably on the dole as well um, and uh, we put him into uh, a car which was rather controversial at the time uh, but a car which actually um, did something which none of the other Formula teams did. And that was it at least won the prize for the finest advert of the year. <laughs> which was the small family car. <laughs> a picture of a Formula One single seater uh, was below that, that wording. And um, Alan went out and his very first race with us, of course, came second at Brands Hatch, uh, just behind James Hunt, and uh, went on. And in fact, um, you know, went on very well, but, um, and Alan had, in fact, had a, um, a longer term contract with us, but, um, shall we say, other uh, areas beckoned. And so uh, that, that didn't continue. Uh, so, but uh, he obviously was 
quite a motivated driver uh, who went on to be world champion, so he had to be good. Uh, but at least we gave him his first opportunity, the same as we gave a number of other uh, lads a first opportunity. So all in all, you know, we had some uh, good lads uh, drive for us. I can't turn around and say, oh, well, they were rubbish. Uh, they all tried their part. But the special one that stood out would be uh, Carlos Pachi and Mike Howard. Okay, we've got another question here in the front. Uh, John, I'd like to ask you a question which you're probably the best qualified person, not only in the room but in the world, as world champion on two wheels and four wheels, which is over the last sort of 30 years or so, which person on two wheels do you think could have made it on four and which person, a world champion on four wheels, do you think could have made it on two? I'm not very qualified to answer. <laughs> I think you're right. You, um, you see, uh, the reason why I was able to change from bikes to cars was because, um, uh, despite the question which came from the other end of the room there, I was still getting better as a uh, motorcyclist. Uh, I was still on a sort of... Uh, that curve which you have, a performance in life, you're rather like a power curve in an engine. You have that performance period and then you sort of flatten out before, unfortunately, the other side, when it, <laughs> when it falls off a little. Not too much, one would hope, but it falls off. But the fact is, relative to uh, your uh, race performance, is certainly that's it. And so you need to be at that right period. And I was sort of at my 25 uh, as such. Uh, and had probably another 10 years in motorcycling uh, if I'd wanted to stay. There was um, a case of where with this situation, I don't know of drivers who have ever thought of retiring early enough to think about one. And secondly, I think that it's not the right way to go from four wheels to two wheels. I know Michael tried it uh, and, uh, you know, when I, I heard, in fact, he was riding well, but um, he had some of his problems. I think that as one goes on, as one develops and creates a relationship with a machine, it's a relationship whereby uh, Initially, when you get on it, obviously you, you think about it and everything else, but then it has to become a natural thing. It has to be a natural reaction where you all act automatically. You haven't got time to think it all out. It all has to come naturally. And that reaction which you get with a bike, and even in my time, today with some of the tires and things, and, and the horsepower they've got, they uh, do it to a greater extent. But even my time, you have it sort of, Ten tenths, and you have it all moving, and everything there. It's it's, it's a sensation where you and machine bec become one, uh, and it's a wonderful sensation. Uh, this is particularly where those fast corners, which I was talking about before, uh, same thing. Can, I think that that sort of feeling and where you're getting all the sensitivity through uh, tips of your fingers uh, and uh, the seat of your pants. Uh, is more intense on a bike than possibly in a car. And so 
That's why I think it was easier to go from a bike to a car than the other way around. Uh, and I don't know, I mean, the, most of the, the racing drivers I've lived with uh, and worked with have all had a keen interest in bikes. Not necessarily ridden them at all, but still very interested in what was happening and everything else. They're still, still basically enthusiasts. I mean, Graham Hill and the rest of it, you talk to him about the bikes and such like. And I mean, when um, Mike Hawthorne came up, I didn't know him well, but he came up to be on that table with me at the Sportsman of the Year in 1958. I met him for the first time and we was chatting and it was him who said, try a car, John. You know, but what were his other words? They stand up easier. <laughs> you know, so uh, that was Mike, and we were due to meet up and do a motorcycle press trial together that coming weekend, and he was killed coming up to London for another meeting. Can you, uh, yes, uh, comment on the influence of our very good friend, Mr. Bernie Eccleston, and his the current position, if you have any comments to make? Sorry? The influence of Bernie Eccleston on Bernie the sport. Any, any comments? Uh, influence of Bernie. Um, I was in a constructors association um, when Andrew Ferguson, who had been with Lotus uh, and team manager and things like this, uh, and had then been the secretary and general um, Doug's body of the uh, Constructors Association uh, decided to retire. Uh, there was another person who came from a, a British uh, motor club, which is uh, very involved in racing, who for a while came in and organised it, but uh, we didn't make any sort of progress. It was still very much just a body which had no power. Uh, and was failing to really communicate with the FIA uh, and get anything on the question of safety or deals relative to money sorted out. And then uh, Bernie came along and said, he was a constructor after all, he said, uh, I'll take it over, I'll run it for you. Uh, I will generate a greater amount and we've divided up this way, etc. cetera. Uh, that gave the toe to Bernie into the position he now has, but it also uh, created the situation which has led to the manufacturers and all the team members having such deals as they have today. Uh, because it coincided with an explosion in world uh, television World Television brought along the opportunity of money. Uh, money brought along the opportunity of, 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 of power. Bernie got together with Max Mosley. Together that then became the FIA, uh, etc. A sort of partnership, and it all took off from then. The commercial side, relative to teams, and partly the way that safety came about is all partly due to those developments which started with Bernie Eccleston. Um, 
and the extra revenue which was generated and the opportunities that he saw. So, uh, you know, Bernie's always been a wheeler dealer, but he certainly, uh, at that stage, uh, was someone who was very much needed. Uh, and he took a interest which developed it. I just unfortunately missed out. <laughs> I just missed out because uh, I'd ended up fighting a sponsor uh, who has reneged on paying me uh, my uh, sponsorship money and I'd fought him in the courts for three years but it drained me of money and um, I had to close my team and in fact you know when you came into the hospital and saw me where I was in St. Thomas's when I had to make that decision uh, to close the team. And that was, what, 1978? 1978. And uh, so I just missed out uh, because it, the big money and things uh, started to come in after that, which would have allowed the team to survive. This is a remarkable story. We were talking before we, we had dinner. Nigel was, was talking about it. Nigel, just, just recount a little bit of that for us, that um, a Formula One team owner from his hospital bed basically announcing to the world via one journalist that his team was closing. Yeah, it was a remarkable thing. I mean, I, I, I had a... I I would, it, I, would it have been from Gloria? Gloria Dollar? Gloria. Yeah, I'm sure it was. Uh, a phone call one day just to ask me to... She said, "John is in uh, St. Thomas Hospital, and he'd like to uh, he'd like to see you." And I said, "I'm fine. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll go. What What's it all about?" And she said, I'll, "I'll I'll leave it to him to tell you." So I I went along there. I can remember your your leg was up in the air like this, and this was all actually a legacy of the. Of the of the of the Mossboard accident, wasn't it? The Can Am accident. It was a, it was a legacy. It was going back in the, the accident in um, um, in um, Canada. Yeah. Uh, where I'd been in, back to St Thomas's, and there, there was some problems, uh, blood infections, etc., yeah. which had been created, which continued the problems. Yeah. Anyway, and, and, I, and the stress which this action uh, brought on yeah. had accentuated the problem and caused other, which ended up St. Thomas's. Yeah, yeah. So I can remember, and I walked in and said, how are you feeling? Are you, you know, how are you, how, how are you doing? How you did that, whatever, you know. Um, and I was sort of thinking, why, why am I here? Why, what, what's the reason for my being here? And then you just looked at me and said, I've, Nigel, I've decided enough's enough. Never forgotten that that moment. Um, and then you went on to say, "I've decided I'm going to I'm pulling the team out of Formula One. Uh, I've, you know, I've got to the end of um, you know where I can go with this." And uh, it, it is remarkable now in today's world to think that that John simply summoned a single journalist, you know, to his his hospital bed to announce that he was withdrawing a team from Formula One. I mean, can you imagine if HRT pulled out today, there'd be a bloody great press conference somewhere, you know. And, and yet here was just, you know, just John simply simply talking to me. And I, 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 at the time, I thought it was amazing. I mean, now, 20, Christ, <laughs> 24 years on. <laughs> um, 
it, it seems, you know, beyond... Be oh, is it? You, you sorry, sorry. Th Thank you, Damien. <laughs> sorry. You also came cheaper, of course. Well, that, yeah, that, that's <laughs> true. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely <laughs> right. Then they would do it today. But, you know, before that, of course... Um, I'd had another meeting, which I, I told you about, I think. Renianu. Uh, Renianu had come in to see me because at the end of the year, we'd had some problems with uh, Victoria Bambilla uh, and his connection with Alfa Romeo, which had interfered with the team. And so, and then uh, uh, he'd had uh, an accident, and so I needed another driver. So I, put, I asked Renianu to drive for me. And in fact, when he came in and did two drives and uh, was in a position before having a, a tappet fail, I think he was lying fourth in the American Grand Prix, uh, etc. And so uh, it was looking highly promising. And I was thinking of perhaps, you know, trying, if I was going to continue trying to put the team around him. Well, he came in to see me in the hospital and he said, John, how are things? Uh, can I... Um, you know, can I do anything? What's happening for next year? He said, if you are running a team, I'm going to drive for you. He said, Renault have offered me a deal. A Frenchman here saying about Renault offering him a deal, but he wanted to drive for me. He said, I want to drive for your little team. So uh, I said to him, I said, Renny, go and sign up with Renault. Uh, because I unfortunately I re reached the end of the road and so uh, that was it and what it ended we had a development car uh, underway which was a ground effect car uh, which actually the following year um, uh, that car was in fact taken out in the Aurora series at Silverstone and uh, Gordon Smiley uh, won the race with it and set a time which I think would have put it about, uh, you know, uh, on the fourth, third or fourth row of the grid. But uh, he uh, took that out. And so um, we passed over our deal with Williams, uh, with um, Southampton University, where we'd done all the research on the ground effect car to Williams, and Williams took our position in Formula One. And that was the end of our uh, Formula One dream. Right, sadly, we are starting to run out of time. So um, I want to get in uh, another question from the floor before we close. There's a chap here in the front who's been eager to ask a question for a while. I'm going to hand you the microphone. Thank you. I wonder, John, what uh, particular personal or driving memories you have of Jim Clark that might stand out uh, to you at this stage many years later? Um, Jim wouldn't appreciate this. <laughs> Sorry, Jim. <laughs> um, a little story about American Grand Prix. We all go off to Riverside and uh, Riverside um, is out in the desert, as one may know. Um, circuit we would race on in Can-Am and things later, but I'd never seen it before. Um, usual in practice, we had a spasm of gearbox problems. The old sequential gearbox on the Lotus, when it worked, it, it was great. You know, but 
so many times it didn't work. And um, it meant the grid position wasn't particularly good. Um, I was always sort of anxious to make haste a bit quickly uh, up the grid and so um, the lights went out and I had a sort of go on a first lap and through the bottom section came out over the top end and uh, there was Jimmy uh, in this little group just before me and there was Innes up before the, uh, up in front of him and um, I got a good drive out of that corner and then I made the first of my mistakes. Um, this was uh, a uh, situation where you came out of the right hand corner, it went over a brow and then in, in, the, in the desert and then it entered the left hand corner further on. Uh, and I went over to the left hand side of the, side of the road uh, and uh, Having got a little bit of a draft, I was there and I just got just past Jimmy before uh, losing the car uh, completely. Uh, which um, unfortunately meant that I T-boned my teammate, Jimmy. Uh, and uh, that put us both out of the race. But there's another part to the story. Before this race, because it was the highest pain race of the year, the Americans had put up a big purse. Colin had said, what we must do is divide the money. Whatever finishing positions we have, we divide it up equally between us. Innes wasn't very happy <laughs> because he finished up there in second place, I think, or won it and uh, of course had to share all his money with me and Jimmy. <laughs> but the big thing about it is that, you know, Jimmy just considered this was, you know, one of those things and it could have happened to him because, uh, you know, what I'd done is um, underestimate the fact that you didn't use the left-hand side of the road, you only stayed on the racing line because otherwise you was on a bunch of sand uh, and that was it. Uh, perhaps. It's, uh, again, uh, my uh, enthusiasm got a little better of me. But Jimmy it was there, but uh, we, we travelled around a, 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 an awful lot together uh, in that first uh, year. And it was, um, in fact, uh, when I sort of first married, uh, he was my, my best man, but I told him that, that was the only time I would admit it. <laughs> Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I think Jimmy Clark and, and the best man, that's probably the perfect point to finish on. Um, I'd just like to say thank you very much to Nigel Roebuck for joining us tonight. And, of course, John Surtees. I, I just wanted to add one last thought. Is there anyone in this room who can comprehend how this man wasn't knighted years ago. Oh.